Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your hosts, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. And this is episode 155. So it's been a couple podcasts since we've had just a Stephen and I podcast. So this is kind of like a project update. And uh, a refresher. Yeah, refresher. Um, the Jeep Wagon Chime Module that we were talking about, I finally fixed it, I think. You think? Mo- mo- I haven't plugged it into the wagon yet, but... Going by the the factory service manual, it, it all functions how it should function. And just just rem, uh, do a reminder of what what all that was. So it's a it's a circuit circuit board module that goes inside the Jeep uh, Wagoneer. That basically, when you leave your keys in, the doors open, it goes blong 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 blong, and lets you know that your keys are in the ignition. And it was toast, right? Oh yeah, it was. Uh, all the capacitors were all exploded. Uh, so I replaced all the capacitors, and then we kind of got it to work, but it would, like, die. It would go, like, that kind of noise. <laughs> um, and so we, and basically I started flexing the board, and then it started working again. <laughs> and Steve was like, oh, probably need to resolder it. Um, but the problem was it was, like, coated in, like, some conformal coating shell shellac stuff. Yeah, and so if you try to solder it, that, that stuff would actually. It got to the point where because I, I started just like trying to melt through it and just resolder everything. Um, but the problem with doing that, it was actually contaminating the solder and putting voids in the solder. Right, like making holes and stuff. It was really. Weird. I guess it was heating up, mixing in, and then outgassing and doing really weird stuff. So basically, I I put some epoxy remover on it. And that got it off. Stripped the hell off of it. Yeah, right? stripped stripped it all off, and then I saw, sucked up all the uh, solder uh, on it, and then resoldered it, and it functions mostly. I don't know if this is how it's supposed to sound, but at least it <laughs> most actually yeah. does what it should do. It beeps. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna fire it up. Oh, this is gonna be a live test. I I have actually not heard this, so this is a first for me too. Okay, so when you first power it up, it makes like a sound. Okay. I don't know if it's supposed to do that, but this is like the always on, so it's it would only do this the first time you plug it in, basically. Sure. So it dies. And then you have to replicate like open switches, like the door is ajar and the key is in. Right? So, so okay, so so this module is a little blue plastic box and it has a bunch of terminals on the end. And did you just apply power or did you have to do anything else to get it to do that? Oh, when I just did that, I just applied power. So that's like, I guess that's the whole circuit powering up. And then you have to feed it the signals like key in, which is, I just did that. Okay. And then I am going to fumble around. I didn't bring my alligator clips. So you're having to finagle it. So this is, this is when your, um, uh, doors opening keys are in. Oh, that's, that's a beautiful sound. Yeah. And then this is when your seatbelt is undone. It does this. Uh, yeah, uh, we've all yeah. heard that before. <laughs> yeah, all heard that noise. <laughs> yeah, it's such an. It, I'm, I'm gonna turn that off. Wait, do you, do you have to short pins to do that? Yeah, yeah. So you 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 apply power to it. Yeah. To to the power pins, and then one pin gets power because your ignition is in, mm. and then one pin is your door jar switch. So you pull it ground, and when you pull it ground, that means the door is open, and then the other pin you pull ground is basically your seatbelt is undone. 
Ah, oh, got it, got it. Okay, yeah. And this this was the unit that had that weird op amp, right? That we kind of uh, looked at a while ago, or or the, the like the, the discrete one. Or am I getting it mixed? No, up? that's the air air conditioner module that had the blown up transistor. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we actually I actually never made a schematic of this. Okay, um, so you don't you don't know exactly how it's doing anything. Yeah, it's got some. I think we looked at some. It's got like AND gates or nor. Or nor, nor gates? I think it's yeah. nor gates. Anyways, it's got some uh, discrete logic blocks in here, and then it's probably got a oscillator, one that's making the tone, and then one for the seatbelt that's telling to actually turn on and off to make the boom, boom. Right, one. right, right. So, so uh, is, do you know if it's an oscillator chip or how are they actually? Oh, it's discrete in here. Oh, it's all discrete. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I think it's discrete plus. We should actually before for the next podcast. We sh- I should actually draw a schematic out for it. Yeah, that'd be fun. I I would love to see how they actually accomplish that. Yeah, but yeah, it functions, and I just got to pop it into the wagon after I do the schematic. And uh, yeah, and find out if it functions in its actual home. Yeah, in the actual home, because it would it would kind of work in its original home, but it would sound like a you know dying rabbit. I think it's the last time we talked about it. Mainly, that was you know garbage capacitors and yes. and a broken board. Yeah, uh, some they probably had like hairline fractures all over the solder or whatever. Congratulations, I think you're one of the few people who have ever fixed that module before. Probably. I I'm actually I think I'm the only person that ever fixed the AC control module because every single time I I googled that part, everyone's just like, "Yeah, just go to the junkyard and hopefully you find a wagoneer that's got one." <laughs> <laughs> that's great. And uh, I, I bet you you're correct about the chime module. Um, there's one more module left. And I don't know if I'm going to fix it or not. It's the cruise control module. Okay. And mainly because that wagon is eventually going to get an engine swap and it's going to have an electrically controlled cruise control instead of the analog. It's actually a box like six inches by six inches. It's ginormous. Oh, okay. To do cruise control, so... And 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 I I I assume it doesn't work, right? It works okay, but it jerks. <laughs> so I bet you some RC timer in there is the capacitors exploded, and so it just like ramps up immediately. Or it's noisy and it's like going crazy because of that. Oh, just hitting the rails. Yeah, doing something like that. Yeah, yeah. it's getting. I confused. think we should at least open it up and take a look at it. Yeah, you never know. Podcast. Maybe it's just one capacitor just blew its guts, and you just. Replace yeah. that, and you got smooth control. Yeah, I doubt it though. <laughs> I, yeah, I doubt. It. I bet yeah, it's going to really be like this, it. and I have to resolder the whole board. And it's probably conformally coded. Probably. Where, where is where is the chime module located in the car? It goes under the uh, dash where your like knee would be. Okay, I thought so. Yeah. Yeah, it plugs into like a fuse box looking thing. You know, that's interesting that they made it like its own individual thing that plugs in as opposed to something that's like hardwired. Yeah, uh, I think it's because of just the age of that vehicle, because the original Wagoneers were designed in built in 67. Yeah. And so you have, you know, over time, new technology creeps into it. And so they just keep adding these modules on. I mean, like, seriously, the cruise control module from factory is duct tape to the bottom of the dash. Wait, really? Yeah, and AMC had a part number for the duct tape. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, they probably have a drawing for it also. I bet yes. you they have a drawing with, like, dimensioned duct tape. Yeah, how? With, with like, tolerance on the length. <laughs> <laughs> Plus and, minus three inches. No, and I bet you, I, I, I bet you they contract somebody to, like, cut duct tape to length so they get, oh, yeah. like, boxes of, like, pre-cut duct tape. Duct tape the, the, so, like, <laughs> and that's the thing is I took, like, the headliner down and the wires are seriously just duct taped to the ceiling. That's great. On the other side. So it's like, it's seriously one of those things. They didn't change any of the sheet metal tooling or anything over like 50 years. And so th that's how you get stuff like this. That's just like a module that was just, just shoved in there. And like, eh, it works. It's from another car, but whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, over the weekend, I was I was watching a, uh, or listening to a documentary about um, like gizmos or something like that. And one of the one of the items that they call like a really useful gizmo is duct tape. And they, they talked about useful things that duct tape has done in the past. And the uh, the astronauts that went up in uh, Apollo 13 took a roll of duct tape with them. And when they had the carbon dioxide issue in the... Oh, they had to build, make the scrubber? They built, they built a filter using socks and duct tape, and it worked. So there you go. Always take a roll with you. Or, or you know, take a roll of gaff tape. Gaff tape is better. Yeah, gaff tape is better. So why is gaff tape better? Uh, it's a, I think it's a stronger weave and a, and a stickier adhesive. Okay. Because I, I, I have a couple rolls around here that I always use. Um. It seems that the adhesive is less gummy as well. Yeah. Also, uh, it's a um, gosh. What is it? Duct tape is like a plastic and and uh, what's it called? Um, cotton fiber. Whereas I think gaff tape is some other kind of fabric. Like a, I don't know something a little bit more robust. And yeah. so it does. Yeah, it doesn't get as gummy. That's for nanoparticles sure. and and schmoo. Yeah, <laughs> actually, okay. So, so slight <laughs> tangent. I've always wanted to get one of these. They're it's super cool. They, I think it's called the Gaff Gun. Uh, it's okay. You know those, um, gosh, uh, those like measurement tools. What are they called? I, I'm going to sound stupid here. It's a, a it's, tape measure. Well, no, it's a tape measure, but it's a, it's like a wheel that you put on the ground and you roll it and it'll tell you how far you walked. I don't know what those are called. Oh, oh, I, I know what you, you, you know, like you can you can get them everywhere. But yeah, it's basically a wheel you walk and then you find out how far it is. Well, OK, so the gaff gun looks like that. It's a little like a trolley that sits on the ground and it has a long handle on it. You put a roll of gaff tape in it and then you can feed cables into it and you just roll it on the ground and it and it tapes the cables. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen those. And you can drive it around and you like depending on what roll of gaff tape you put on it, you can you can put like you know, five or six cables in a row and it makes this really nice path. And, and for anyone who's like ever done like live sound or like worked on a stage or anything, doing that by hand sucks and it takes a long time. But with this thing, you just kind of like whoop, whoop, and then go drive wherever you want. And there's, you know, cables taped to the ground. That's my tangent. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> I know I've seen that video uh, of that uh, gaff gun. So yeah, it's awesome. I think it's called the gaff gun. I, I could be wrong. Uh, it should be its name. All right, so you you got some other stuff that you've got done, right? Yeah, so uh, I've been working on that uh, Star Wars uh, detonator prop. And so I got all my 3D prints. I got them the first base coat print painted. I'll take a picture for the blog because people can't see me holding these in front of a webcam. Um, so I'm using like a Rust-Oleum silver-ish paint. Uh, it turned out really good. So this, is, this will be like the... Uh, 
base coat, and then I'm going to do dry brush on it to get into all the cracks. And then um, I don't know how exactly I'm going to do yet. I'm probably going to wear gloves and then get some like, like goopy, some kind of goopy, tacky paint to give it that kind of grungy, greasy look. And then, um, and then clear coat it with like a matte clear coat. And then that should be the paint. It should look pretty good. I want it to look like it's been sitting in the bottom of like the Millennium Falcon for like 80 years. <laughs> so, so it's it's a uh, basically the Star Wars equivalent of a grenade, right? Correct. And so I've been building a circuit with a Arduino Nano and like a, uh, I can't remember, L, it's the LM387, I think. Is that like the op amp that a lot of people use for like my first amplifier uh 386 yeah 386 yeah okay yeah so i've got one of those a little board um and so i'm going to fire it up and then put the speaker because it's got a little piezo speaker and so the audio quality is not the best because it's a square wave going into a just general purpose op amp into a a piezo so there's nothing you know, audio file. About yeah, shield it, your ears if you <laughs> as a warning. <laughs> no, I've I've heard it. It's not it's not bad. It's not bad. Um, and I've got some LEDs that blink in sequence, so I can post the video on the uh, the uh, blog as well. So, so so you you basically wrote this firmware to do this uh, this audio right, and and basically hard coded this audio, I guess, lookup table in a way, right? Yeah, basically, it uses just the PWM function and just hammers that. Wait, pin. So, okay, go ahead and play it, and then I'll ask you a question. <laughs> and so, I I did program an explosion sound that's very reminiscent of like the Atari twenty six hundred days. Yeah, yeah. Jo- uh, Josh, please put a limiter on that. Okay, here it is one more time with a limiter on it. Did, when you wrote the code for that, did you just write like a table that's like play this frequency and for this duration and then move to the next thing? Yeah, I basically I made a a, a state machine and so it says um do this state for X long, do this state for X long. And each one of those is like, um, each, each state has its own sub state. So it's like an on off. So like, cause there's a blinking led. And so when the led turns off, it turns off the tone, it does the pause and then turns back on, etc. And then at the end, I basically just wrote a, st- a I kind of broke the state machine rule and just had a while loop. And so it while as it ramped up, so you get that whoop, sound <laughs> and then the and then it had another state at the end of the whoop which was the uh explosion in quotes and did you just do random noise for the explosion it is random noise for yes. random periods of time <laughs> oh that's great so wait so wait the explosion is different every time right yes wait no it's not it can't be because uh, unless you put the random seed function into the arduino right uh, I don't know how the random function in Arduino works. I th- so it, it's been my experience, and I don't know. Maybe on the Nano it's different, but if you do random, it it is random, but it it follows the same path every single time you turn on, unless you do the random seed um, mm. at the at the beginning. And the random, I I can't remember exactly how it works, but you can randomize the seed. <laughs> <laughs> 
but that's awesome. That's that's. Great. I think one of the best ways to actually do that for the seed is actually read a analog pin that's just an antenna, and you just get noise. Yeah, actually, what's funny is um, I just did a project recently that uh, we we did that. I, I was using three uh, what are they three ADCs on an STM chip that were all twelve bit, but I had an extra sixteen bit ADC lying around that I wasn't using, and I didn't need that resolution and. It was just free floating, so we used that as our random. So we just read noise, sixteen bits of noise, <laughs> and and it does great for random. It's perfect for it. So I'm I'm gonna be uh, finishing up the paint and then stuffing that circuit into that you know little detonator, three D printed detonator, and uh, I'm thinking about uh, once I get this working, this would be like the prototype because I kind of want to make a couple more for our our D and D group. Uh, or I guess Star Wars D20 group. And so I'm thinking about modifying this the 3D model to actually have bosses in it and then just make a PCB I just drop into it and then it works. Because, <laughs> you know, That's... more projects, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. There we go. <laughs> you, you, need to, you need to create an, a network of thermal detonators that... You, we, you in Texas can like flip your thermal detonator and it would flag me and roll dice for me, like just over ah. the internet. Now that would be cool. So like we're talking like an IoT detonator that's got a, a display on it for a dice. Yeah, but like I can hold my thermal detonator and see you roll your dice. <laughs> that's actually a cool idea. That would be really cool. Yeah, and it would have to like buzz and beep like you did. Yep. Although it would be it's going just, crazy the entire time. So maybe yeah, because it would be turning them on and off. <laughs> yeah, that's, <right. laughs> that's actually one thing I might want to add to this is a uh, is like a, a vibration motor from a pager. And so when the explosion goes off, it actually moves. Oh, yeah, if you put it on a table or something like that. Yeah, it goes. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. No, yeah. you need to post some pictures of it. It's cool because it has like a little... The way it's activated is it has like a little flip. I don't know. The, the it's a little slide switch on the top. Which, okay, let's talk about that for a quick second. That seems way too easy to activate a grenade. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just I mean, a little slide switch. Even a modern grenade where you pull the pin, you still have to release the lever for it to start yeah, you the have to timer. squeeze it, pull the pin out, and then release the lever, and it goes and it flies off. Right, because even if you pull the pin, like that's the I think that's the misconception. If you pull the pin on a grenade, people are like, "Oh, the timer's going." No, it 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 only goes when it leaves your hand. Yeah. So not a thermal detonator. It just goes whenever you flip that little thing. So if you have it in your pocket, you know, good luck. Whoop! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's right. <laughs> okay. Um, update on the Raspberry Pi three compute module board. You've got a lot of stuff to go through. Yeah, yeah, this is the USB hub saga. So I'm using the uh, microchips LAN 9514. And um, I've been routing, or not routing, I guess. I've been drawing the schematic of that. I mean, kind of, I took some time off from this project for like a month and been getting back to it. Um, and so I'm at the part of that circuit now where I need to do the USB power switching for controlling how much current the USB ports are giving out. And so the idea is when the USB power port uh, pulls more power over currents, then the uh, the LAN 9514 chip needs to be needs to be told that hey, 
port two has pulled more power, and so it can tell the OS that something bad happened, and so it can shut down that USB communication port. And all that happens in like a split second, right? And so you don't blow something up and lose data or corruption. Yeah, that that's always fun when you're working on customer gear and either you know the manufacturer makes a mistake or the customer made a mistake and you plug it in and Windows goes, USB power surge has been detected. That's happened more than once. That's what this whole circuit does. Um, the LAN 9514 is kind of weird because it uses one pin to do this whole thing per port. So it has four of these, what they call port control, P-R-T-C-T-L. Go figure. And it's a single I.O. pin that controls one port, and it operates as an input and an output. And so at first, when I'm power up, it operates as an open drain with an internal pull-up. So it pulls it up to uh, the one <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> 3.3 volts, I think is what it is, or 5 volts. I can't remember. It pulls it up, and your USB power switch needs to be connected. It's enable pin and it's pin for notifying, so like it's a alert pin or um, fault pin, I think it's the right term, fault pin, need to be connected to this one pin. And so when it pulls up, it needs to be able to, your your USB power switch needs to be uh, enable high, right? So it's enabled, allowing the juice. But your fault needs to be low, so it so that the fault pin can pull that low, and then when the LAN 9514 detects that it goes low. The LAN 9514 asserts its dominance over that pin and yanks it lower to zero, turning off the power USB power switch because it pulls its enable low. It's like this weird act of That's like a weird dance. Yeah, because like as your USB power switch is pulling the fault pin low, the enables like when is it going to turn off? And then if it turns off. If, you, if the enable pin goes down, the good thing is a lot of times these uh, fault pins are still asserted correctly, so they don't get into this tri-state weirdness. Okay, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of weird. How is this described in the data sheet? Is there, Page like... Page 1415. For, uh, the okay. uh, LAN 9514. Okay. I tried to explain it as best as possible. Um because I try to condense like basically two pages of stuff in like three sentences. <laughs> Port power control. Yeah. Uh, okay. So if you go to that page, there's a diagram of how it's wired up, and it's yeah. once you look at that diagram, it's pretty obvious of how it works. Got it. See, so yeah, I skipped over it. Yeah, they got like little thought bubbles and stuff. It's weird. Yeah. Oh no, go one more page down. Yeah, well, I was looking at the yeah, no, I was looking at the page up. I, I I see what you what you're getting at, but no, the the one before was talking about the power connections with thought. Oh yeah, that's the physical Ethernet physical connections and stuff. I like how they Which, drew every single bypass cap on there too. Like, oh it's yeah, just, like, it's just pockmarked with with the uh, bypass. Yeah, this gaps. thing's that's got great. a lot of a lot of bypass gaps. Um, and so for oh for that. USB power switch, I found the MPS MP62551, um, which I really like this part. It, uh, it will allow me to do basically the maximum over USB 2.0 power, which is 500 milliamps. Uh, 
and I can, since it has four USB ports, I can use four of these, so I get two amps total power, which is pretty sweet. Um, I think last podcast I talked about this, I was looking at the TPS 2054B, um, which actually is a four-port USB switch, which is really cool, but the problem is is you only get um, 500 milliamps maximum out of the whole chip. Got it. And yeah. so you, if you're drawing from all of them, you have to split that up evenly. It distributes it. Yeah. And so I'm thinking about doing the single chip per channel isolation kind of thing and just run it that way. No, that's a it good costs idea. a little bit more, but eh, whatever. I'm not, it's not like I'm building millions of these things. Sure, sure. I mean, do you need... The, but the question is, is there a situation where you would need all two amps? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> of course, right? Of course, yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, you answered my question then, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and both these chips operate the way the port control and the LAN 9514 want it. Uh, it took a while to find some that actually would work that way. Mm. Um, and I'm thinking about taking this... USB hub circuit and making its own sub circuit and building a board with just this on it because this is like the one part of the Raspberry Pi 3 compute module board thing that I'm not fully sure about because I've never tried to design something like this. Got it. And so I'm thinking about making its own sub thing so it's like, you know, $30 to prototype instead of $100 to prototype. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Break it. And plus, then I'll be like, oh, yeah, now I have a hub circuit for USB. But think about it. If you prototyped it and it worked, then you could just have a two-amp USB charging four-quad charging port. <laughs> uh, it's not a ch charging port. It's just because um, USB. Okay, if, uh, USB charging is a different setup oh, okay. than what I'm doing here. This is just normal 2.0 normal stuff. But I want the full current, so... Man, I I picked up a wireless phone charger the other day, and uh, you know that's probably old hat for people, but it's the first time I've used it. I'm like, man, why haven't I been using this? It's freaking awesome. Oh yeah, yeah, it's super easy. And I and I I, I got a new phone the other day, so like ev I, it wasn't one of those things where you have to activate it or like uh, in install anything or do anything. It's just like literally plug it into the wall and set your phone on it and juice. It w and juice just came flowing through it. Yeah, just flowing yeah and it charged in like two seconds <laughs> <laughs> it actually has a fan installed in the base because it it can get hot doing the fast charging oh cool well it's funny because they it, on the box they sell it and and this is a samsung like like legit samsung charger it's not like a third-party thing they said they, they said it has a fan to cool your phone when it's fast charging i'm like bull that's that's a fan to uh, to cool your thing while it's charging <laughs> not the phone <laughs> some marketing stuff going on there oh yeah yeah you got to spin it to be positive yeah <laughs> and then the uh the last project i have an update on is my old uh propeller development stick the pds um, these are like my favorite like little tiny boards. Uh, it's like my own spin on a you know little development board for the parallax propeller. Yeah, and for a long time, if you uh, loaded, uh, if you joined Macrofab, uh, you could look at the, that project on Macrofab. That was like the first thing Macrofab did, right? Yeah, actually, it's still the demo project. Oh, it's still up there? Okay, <laughs> it's nice. Still yeah, the so, demo you, project. so like a lot of, of people have seen the prop dev stick. 
Yeah, so if you go to the MacFab website and click demo, that board there is the Rev 4B or 4D, I can't remember, of the prop dev stick. I think it's D, which is the latest version. Anyways, I am work, started working on the Rev 5, um, mainly because I kind of want to make it a little bit smaller. I want to squeeze down, because right now it's like 900 mil pin spacing between the two, and I want to get down to like 800. And so I'm switching to the QFN version of the prop over the QFP, which actually like shrinks down the package size by like 30, 40%. Yeah. It's actually quite a bit. Um, I guess you're going from like 0.5 millimeters to 0.4 millimeters pin spacing, and that does a lot. Well, um, and you don't have pins sticking out. That Yeah, that too. And the pads are thinner too, so right. everything just gets smaller. Um, and I'm switching to 042 parts instead of 0603, mainly because now I'm not hand soldering these. <laughs> <laughs> so I can just do 042. Yep. Um, and I'm going to USB Type-C for USB 2.0. So I'm going to keep the whole... It's just going to be a 500 milliamp USB 2.0 device. I'm just going over the Type-C because I can now. And uh, the big change is I'm going to change how... I, I want to change how the power is handled. So I originally have the TI's TPS2113 which is a power mux, auto-switching power mux. And so when you have USB power on, um, that's like the normal default thing. But if you have an external power source and USB plugged in, it will pick whichever one is higher and use that. So if you have like 6-volt DC coming into it, I actually can't do 6-volt. If you have 5.5-volt DC coming into it, or 5 volts, I guess, um, it will default to, to the... Um, external power instead of using USB power. So, so it's really nice so you don't get like back feeding into the USB port. Does, uh, does, it, power. does it always favor an external supply as opposed to USB? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Always favors external. Now that's not a very good idea if you're doing like battery charging because <laughs> you want to use the USB as the power, the charged battery. But this is not, not designed for that. Um, the problem with that TPS2113 is it's 5.5 volts max. And I'd like to be able to use like external battery packs like a 7.4 volt lithium. And so I've been looking at the NCP3901, which is a dual input MUX that's an auto switcher. Um, it's in this weird wafer package, and I've never used wafer packages before. So this is going to be new for me. It's like a kind of like a BGA package, I guess. But it handles like three or five amps, something crazy. And I'm like, that's way more than I need, but it's, it's really tiny. And uh, it does what I need. It goes up to like 30 volts. The only problem is it doesn't have built-in current limiting. So I'm going to have to add a current limiting switch. Um, I'm going to have to... I think I'm going to search through NPS's website. And because I've, I've been looking at their... I really like their stuff. They have some really cool power parts. And so I'm going to try using some more of their parts just to get a feel for that stuff. Um, NPS feels a lot like Maxim. Yeah, we've talked we've talked a lot about Maxim's data sheets and yeah. and their offerings and and how it's kind of awesome that they they like they give you a lot of things that you didn't think about. You know, they show yes. they showcase a lot of really cool stuff. Yeah. NPS is kind of like that, um, and it reminds me a lot of like LT as well. Except L that yeah. when the good thing with NPS, every single part I pulled off their website and plugged in the Mauser, Mauser had. Yeah, and they yeah. had like a thousand of. So I'm like, okay, this is not like Maximum LT. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
You know, analog, analog devices way. has good stuff too. Uh, yes, they, they they show good. You know, the the one that's really big in, that comes to mind that doesn't really hold your hand is Texas Instruments. They're great. Don't get me wrong. I love Texas Instruments, but their data sheets are kind of. They don't. They tell you how it works, and that's it. They just, uh, or they rely yeah. on you to go find app notes in their huge repository. Forty years of app notes. Actually, probably longer than that. Fifty yeah, years. Longer. Yeah, for sure. Wait, it's twenty nineteen, and they probably started in the sixties. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Sixty, seventy years now. They've got a lot of app notes. That's for sure. Yeah. The best cool. is when you find that crusty PDF that looks like it's been scanned in Xerox eighty times. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> I you know I I hate oh gosh I hate it when you find a schematic that's been scanned five thousand times and you try to look at a value and it it a value of like a capacitor and it's like well that could be I guess forty seven hundred picofarads or whatever else it's just a big blob of black you know like <laughs> <laughs> it's like whoever did the original schematic wrote it in pencil erased it and wrote it again so there's just a little bit of smudge and the like oh, yeah. xerox through its life has merged those two layers together they have become one they've become one um speaking of old hand-drawn schematics i've been working with ben a bit on a uh atari 2600 a single chip Atari 2600. And by Ben, you mean Ben Heck. Yeah, ben, Benjamin Heckendorn. He uh, was on the podcast a couple weeks ago. Yep. Um, so the original Atari 2600s, uh, they have three chips. They have a 6507 uh, CPU. They have the Riot chip, which is the input, output, and RAM controller. And then they have the TIA, T-I-A, and that is the graphics and sound processor. Well, at the very end of the life of the Atari 2600, so the original Atari 2600 came out in 77, around 87, 86, 87, the, um, they, were, they were still making this thing, which is amazing, but they started like cost reduce the hell out of it. Like at each iteration of the 2600 was like to reduce the cost. Well, if you think about 87, the... Nintendo Entertainment System had already been out for over two years. Yes. Yeah. And so this 2600 is still strong, like in, in international markets like Brazil. And so they came out with a all-in-one chip that was the 6507, the Riot, and the Tia in one package, and they call it the Jan. Um, and they're very hard to find. And I actually found one like a decade ago. And it's just been sitting in a box. And funny enough, like I was redoing, like going through all my old junk and Ben was going through all of his old junk and he found his like a day before I found mine. And, but he only just had the chip and this is a dip 64 package. It's a monster chip. It's a yeah. monster, uh, monster chip. And uh, basically I reverse, we, we have a schematic that someone I guess got from Atari from back in the day, but it's incorrect. Like, it shows, like, a 48-pin part for the Jan. And it's like, no, it's clearly a 64-pin. Um, so we basically repinned it out and made our own schematic. How'd you, how'd you repin it? Uh, basically going off the schematic, because most of the external circuitry was the same. So basically working backwards into the chip. 
Oh, okay. So you 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 have a board that accepts the the Jan chip. Yeah, yeah. I have a the full board. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I thought you just had the chip, and you were saying you you reverse engineer. I was like, oh wow, how'd you do that? <laughs> no, no. And so basically, what we found out is um, one of the weird things is is one of the uh, address lines is reversed on it. So it's like it's like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, ten, nine. 11, 12, 13, 14. <laughs> and so it flips two of them. Yeah, that was an oops from the from the factory, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why it's reversed like that, but yeah, it is. <laughs> That's funny. So, so Stephen, what have you been up to? Well, I've been up to a lot, but not as much as you, clearly. Or you, you just, you've been saving things up for weeks. I've been saving stuff up. <laughs> for weeks, yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, so uh, you know, I've been I've been working on this graphic equalizer that uh, I've been talking about for a couple weeks, and um, do we have a code name for that yet? Code name EQ. Okay. Yeah, that's boring. Sorry, that was really bad. Uh, but no, so I've been I've been working on that, and really, I've been doing the boring stuff that's not really that special about it. Uh, so I don't have a ton to talk about. And what I mean by boring stuff is I'm just building it. And yeah, yeah. and so one oh, of the things I got an is, idea, Stephen. Yeah, what's that? We do a contest right now in Slack. If someone can come up with a cool name for Steven's 20 band EQ, they can get a Macrofab shirt. Ah, I like that. Yeah, let's do it. Give and uh, so Parker and I, I guess we'll both kind of like discuss it and pick a code name for it, whichever one we think is cool. So Macfab sounds good to me. Dot com slash Slack is that what it is or yes. Macfab dot slash Slack uh, Macfab dot com slash Slack is that. Uh, whatever, uh, it'll be in the notes. Notes. Go to the go to the podcast notes, and you can figure out how to get on Slack, and then come up with a name for my graphic equalizer, and we'll we'll go with that. So, I've I've been building it, and it's kind of going slow because I've got a lot of other things in the way that. So I'm just building it when I have time. And and one of the things is one of the boards. So I discussed this last time I talked about it. I I ended up using PCIe uh, pluggable boards or connectors to be able to accept all of the band circuitry which by the way they look really cool i'm super happy with it and all of them actually function pretty well like the connections and everything but i've got 21 of these connectors and each one has 64 pins so you know do the math <laughs> on that and when you start talking about how much you have to solder and so i'm sort of juggling right now it's like do i want to sit down and program the selective solder machine that I have available to me to do all of that, which frankly, it's, it's not the fastest thing to program or do I want to just sit down and pro and, and solder 1300 solder points with a chisel tip, which really doesn't take that long, you know? So I got an idea. Yeah. What's that? Turn on the selective solder and just have the fountain sitting there, spray the bottom of the board with flux and use it as a wave. With your hands. Okay. Okay. So you don't do that when you're your your when the shop foreman is is there though. <laughs> yeah. What what's a shop foreman? Uh. No. So so no. Was, I was literally this morning. I walked into work and I was talking to the guy who runs the selective solder machine, and he said the exact same thing. <laughs> <laughs> it would work. Yeah. It'd no. Totally it would totally work. work. I mean, it's sort of dangerous and it's also kind of like skill based, I guess. Or you can just put the board in it and just jog the machine. Uh, this machine isn't that kind. Let's put it that way. I mean, it's a, it's it's a it's a great machine, but it's not going to be as like nice about doing that. 
Uh, so ah. the, actually, the machine that we have is a gosh, it's an Ursa. I don't remember the the model number. But what's nice about it is it takes your board in. And it moves it to the back of the machine, and it has, I call it the pizza oven, uh, but it has a whole bunch of uh, heaters that oh, heats the board. It preheats the board, but only from the underside, and then it moves it forward, and then the you know the chocolate fountain of solder comes over and yeah. it hits all the points. <laughs> it's actually really super nice, because the, the, one, the one we had at Macrofab back in the day didn't do preheating, so yes. it, it was a little funky because of that, but, but the, the pizza heater really... It helps yeah. a lot, especially if you have multi-layer boards with ground planes, which my distribution board does have. So, you know, there's a there's a lot of ways I could do this. But honestly, like we've discussed this a handful of times on the podcast. I, soldering to me is like really therapeutic. I love just like listening to music and soldering. So doing 1300 solder points doesn't sound terrible. It actually sounds kind of fun. So I'm still <laughs> judging that. Uh, so so yeah, like there's there's all that, and I, I've programmed uh, our pick and place at work to with the program for all of my band boards. So everything's there. I just I haven't gotten a spare moment to load all of the tape and onto the it. feeders and stick it on. And it, you know the thing about it is like that takes a lot of time. And mm-hmm. and really the you know most of the stuff I build, I need one or two of. Uh, this this is a project that's actually you know worthwhile to do on the pick and place. It's just uh, there's there's a lot of there's there's honestly hours of work before you even press play, and you know for that machine to actually go and do things. And it comes down to even like you have to move the head over the tape and look at the part in the tape and say like oh is this the right direction? And you know there's just so many little things. So I've got all that programmed. I'm literally at the point now where I just have to put parts on feeders and throw them in the machine and press go so i'm that will happen hopefully soon i don't know we'll figure it out Uh, i'll be working on that getting close yeah so uh, you know one one of the things i wanted to mention is that i actually did use gold fingers on a lot of these boards so um for those who don't know gold fingers are kind of like Think of Nintendo cartridges, you know, like the when you when you look in the bottom of a Nintendo cartridge, you see PCB with a bunch of gold contacts on it and uh, saliva and spit all over them. Well, yeah, a lot of humidity from breath all over, yes. <laughs> which which it's funny. Uh, I, I, I've, I've heard many, many times that like, don't do that. That's absolutely terrible. And in a, in a way, like, yeah, I, I, you can you can uh, what I mean by don't do that is like don't breathe in the bottom of your Nintendo carts. But like when we were kids, like that's what we had available. We had our breath and we had Nintendo carts, you know? Yeah. And, and the funny thing about that is somehow everyone came to that conclusion. Yeah. Before we had an Internet, we figured that out <laughs> Yeah, but before the Internet. For some reason, that worked. And like, no one told me to do that. And I, like, but, and that's a, a, a common thing. And every kid, like that, every kid knew how to do that. Yeah. It's like that little S that you drew in middle school. <laughs> the graffiti S. Yeah, the graffiti S. Like, yeah. where did that come from? No one knows. I don't know. Yeah. A Banksy did it, right? Sure. <laughs> but but okay so yeah I did I did I did gold fingers on this uh, and and so I've done gold fingers in the past on some some products I've designed and uh, or been a part of designing and there's sort of like what what's kind of cool nowadays is there's like a less professional I guess you could say way of doing gold fingers because it used to be when you wanted gold fingers you you had to 
provide your Gerbers, and then you would create a fabrication drawing, and you would like have to show bubbles and and like identify areas that you wanted gold fingers, and then mm -hmm. like show like cross section edges, be like, hey, I want you to chamfer, put a forty five chamfer on the edge of my PCB. But what's kind of cool now is with like all of these online PCB vendors, you just click a button that says gold fingers <laughs> and it shows up gold fingers which is kind of nice and by gold <laughs> fingers i mean it, they, uh, it, a lot of times they also call it hard gold uh where they basically they overcoat the or overplate the fingers such that they're more robust and they won't break from multiple insurance insertions mm -hmm. into connectors so but it's funny, like, I, I went that route of doing hard gold when, in reality, I'm going to plug these things in once, and that's yeah. it. Like, their life is going to be plugged in, and that's it. But I don't know. It was fun. So it's kind of cool. Like, what, you know, it would be fun one day to kind of actually create a fab drawing uh, and, and discuss, like, why we did it that way and, like... But but it's it's also kind of nice to just make a design, follow the data sheet for the connector, because most of those data sheets for the connectors that require gold fingers say do it this way and you're good mm -hmm. uh and and then you just press the buttons when you buy the uh the pcbs which you know actually what's kind of fun um on the board that i created the way i did it was i i started by drawing the board outline which the board outline frankly was decided by the connector because uh, it had yeah. to be a certain, like, yeah, everything had to be specific. A, a certain profile. Right, right. The, the connector data sheet said, just draw it this way. And the only, the only thing that I, as the designer, got to choose is how long the board stuck out of the connector, right? Uh, so, so I, you know, I chose that. But I actually made the top and bottom gold fingers a single component in DipTrace. So I made it a single component... And then I just placed it on my origin and everything lines up uh, as opposed to like individually creating every pad as mm -hmm. its own individual thing. I just made it a single component. So like I, I have a component that's called card edge and I just dropped that in and, and there we go. So it actually came out pretty easy. Um, so th there's actually one other connection that I did. I'm doing a lot of like things that I don't normally do. Like, I, I very rarely do gold fingers unless the design requires it, and most of my personal stuff never does. But but one other thing that I, I, I've wanted to try for a very long time, but I haven't had a need for it until now, is a special kind of coax connection that came to mind a while ago. I wanted to make a coax connection that doesn't actually require a connector, but I could still utilize a connection to my PCB. So I, I made a really interesting footprint that... It's it'll be a little bit difficult to describe, but I'll give it a give it a shot here. Basically, I made a pad or a through hole pad that the center conductor of my coax will go through. But the interesting thing about this pad is that on the bottom side, the annular ring or the the, the actual ring of of copper is large, and the top side of the board it's really small, and the. Uh, surrounding on the top side I put a secondary pad that is basically a donut uh, so if you think of the inside of the donut there's a void of copper and then inside of that is my through hole so basically what I have is I have my, my center conductor going through the board but I also have a place for the uh, braid the copper braid in the coax to solder to so mm -hmm. effectively I'm trying to make a PCB connection that doesn't actually require any conductor or any actual 
connector itself. The PCB itself is a connector. And I wanted that because I wanted my ground of my uh, coax to go all the way to the PCB. And then my center conductor goes into the PCB and my actual signal that I'm taking off of the coax is, uh, goes on an inner layer in the board. So I'm shielded all the way to the actual PCB itself. It's probably absolutely ridiculous, and it only makes sense if you're doing this soldering by hand. So it's not like anything you would ever use in a production environment. Yeah, you can't use a machine to do it. Right, right. But I'm making one of these, and I've always wanted to just try this. So um, it actually looks kind of good. Uh, the the place I got, I got the boards made at JLC PCB, and um, the drill hits are not exactly center, but they overall, like, it all looks good. And there's copper everywhere. So I'll, uh, I'll have to take a picture of that and show that off. And then when I, when I actually soldered my coax to it, we'll see how well it goes. Because it's sort of dependent on how, like, perfect I cut the, the coax. The coax, <laughs> yeah. But I do have a coax cutter that in the past makes, I've found makes really, really sharp cuts. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. You need to get a uh, render of it as well. Yeah, well, uh, so here's the... Th- I mean, for people who've been listening to the past couple months, I'm I'm designing a, a new guitar amplifier, and sort of one of the things that I've set myself out for is to 3D model every part that goes into the amp. And I've been slowly doing piece by piece by piece, and I've got the whole graphic equalizer um, modeled up. In fact, I have... I have one of the input boards that goes into it, the board that handles all the power and the input-output signals. And I have that modeled with all of its components on it, and it looks awesome. Uh, but eventually, I will model the coax that goes up to that, too. Because the, the kind of the end goal of this is I want to have a full 3D model of the amplifier, every single part in Fusion 360. And then I want to set out all the parts and I want to build it based off of my 3D model and effectively the bill of materials that shows up as every part in Fusion 360. So it's sort of an excuse to get better at CAD, but it's also an excuse to just build another amp. There you go. That's what we're always looking for. Excuses. Excuses to do more projects, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the goal is for that to be done in... This is 2019, right? Yeah. So 2019. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> It'll happen eventually. All right. On to the RFO. We'll burn through these pretty quick. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is something that uh, Mike from the uh, Slack channel found. No, I no, think no, it was no, that's the next one. Yeah, no, this is Hyron. This is Hyron found, and it's the Bluetooth chip doesn't need a battery because it harvests energy from the air. Woo. That's a very clickbaity article. Oh, extremely, yeah. So it's not technically harvesting from the air, is it, Stephen? Um, no, it is not. And we have Parker and I kind of like did a little bit of pre-research on this. Just we we pre-gamed right beforehand because anytime you see any of these kind of clickbaity things, especially especially when you see anything that's electronic where it starts off with like you can get anything for free like my my, <laughs> my bullshit radar like just goes ah, 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 like immediately <laughs> uh so so effectively let's go ahead and i don't know let's let's deconstruct this and look at it so this company called williot i think that's how you pronounce it w-i-l-i-o-t williot uh has produced 
let's see here, what do they call it? They call it a chip, a paper-thin Bluetooth chip that is able to operate entirely without a battery. Uh, so, so they call it the first battery-free Bluetooth sensor tag. Right, and 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 so like they have this press release that they just came out with where they are basically saying that they have this small ID tag that's like a stamp that basically sniffs Bluetooth and radio and cellular waves and powers itself based off of the energy that comes from these electromagnetic radiation effectively, right? So it's it's a ARM processor on a chip that has a fairly unique antenna shape on it. And apparently what they are claiming is that they can harvest energy from the air, power this processor, read sensors, and then rebroadcast over Bluetooth up to nine meters information. So it's a little, and by a little, I mean a lot clickbaity and kind of interesting because I would love for this kind of thing to be real. But anytime I see this, I'm just like, okay, we got to look deeper into this. So I've kind of been reading through their information and going to their website and trying to find some details about how this all kind of comes together. And they have this one minute video that they, they posted recently that shows their device doing a handful of tasks and things like it in the video, they show weight sensing and a couple of other things and they show it broadcasting. And what I mean by show, they have like these kind of animations of like, they hold up the tag and like lines come out of it. And it, yeah, it reminds me of an old cartoon where like stink fumes come <laughs> off like characters and it's just like little wig squiggle lines. Yeah. It looks like that. And and I don't want to make okay, so I don't want to make it sound like we're shitting on this or anything. No, no, like no, that. no, no, no. But like, cause I would love for this to be real, but, yeah, but exactly. the first thing that yeah. comes to mind is like, okay, great. Like you, this is not a new idea. Let's just let's just lay this out. Like these guys have not discovered something that is like unique. This has been yeah, thought two, of a bazillion two, times. Two point four gigahertz. Uh, energy harvesting is a well-studied field. Right, exactly. So what kind of secret sauce or magic do these guys have? And what's interesting is if you go to their website, which is uh, wiliot.com, I think, uh, if you go to their website, it's it's well-designed. It's got a whole bunch of stuff uh, on I it. I almost like went crazy because I went to the website and I thought it said Mr. Bacon. It's Mr. Beacon. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> if it was just a website about IoT bacon, I'd be I'd be like, okay, well, we should. This is awesome. Let's Where can I give it money? <laughs> yeah, we, so like, how do I buy this? So, so like, there's a lot of hype on this website about like what they are claiming it will do, but there is zero proof across the entire website of it actually doing anything. There's no data. There's no actual videos of it doing anything. But there's like use cases and uh, plenty of information about them getting funding, which they did get funding. They got $30 million and two of their investors are uh, Samsung and Amazon, which, hey, super cool. Maybe maybe they showed them something that of it actually working. And I would love for this to work because, I mean, there's a lot of applications that go into this. In fact, they show one, one of the ones in the videos that's pretty cool. I, I mentioned weight sensing earlier. They kind of showed uh, it, it was something very similar to the, uh, what was that one service that we talked about a while ago, that IoT, like, 
service that we use for the the beer brewing stuff. Gosh, what was that called? Ubi dots. It was like Ubi dots. They showed they showed this this thing where you know they were graphing or plotting data as it came in, and they they put a weight on one of their little devices, and and their device could sense pressure and things like that, and it was doing so without any external power source. Like you know how powerful that is, and how absolutely amazing that would be. Uh, so apparently, you know, according to their website and their press release, they do plan to showcase its capabilities in mid-January, so about now. Sometime soon, they will, you know, demonstrate to the world. And if so, like, I would love to know how it actually works, because the power output from a Bluetooth device is so small. Miniscule. It's it's so, so small. And so the, the question is, if it's gathering from Bluetooth devices, how does it have enough power to then, like, turn up a processor, like, make some decisions about things, and then broadcast on the same Bluetooth. Like, the stink filter is just, like, like so it's going probably, crazy. It's probably cycling, so it's got... It's probably goes into deep sleep, so it's pulling nanoamps, right? Microprocessor. And then it sits there harvesting, charging up, charging up, charging up, gets to a certain point, and then, you know... Fires the CPU at max everything, and then processes just pukes as fast everything as can, out. Yeah, and then sends out a burst. Yeah, goes back to sleep. So the interesting thing though is that with Bluetooth, I think I might be wrong on Bluetooth because I haven't done a lot with it. But I think you need to have a continuous connection. I I think you have to have, keep handshaking to keep that connection alive, or is it just streaming? So they're doing something here by why. Getting being able to go to sleep like that, yeah, and to basically turn the radio off, but then when it turns back on, it doesn't have to renegotiate because that takes too much power, probably. Yeah, and that can take seconds to to actually do. Yeah, like and to have your processor like continually broadcasting during that time would just eat through. Well, and, and on top of that, you know, you, you were talking about it was harvesting energy while it's in deep sleep. If you look at their images. Their images shows a little black box, like uh, like a chip, that's on mm -hmm. a little uh, you know piece of paper that has some copper shapes on it. What's storing the charge? Like where where is all that energy? Is it, it could have a, a it, that chip could have a um, solid state uh, super cap in it. Yeah, yeah. Or or, or seen, a connection um, to a power supply somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, they actually. Uh, they they've actually solved quantum entanglement for power transmission. Oh, and that's what you actually seen there. Yeah, uh, no, yeah, actually, they're, no, they're, they're, fl seen. they're flipping quantum uh, charge from like I don't know something like the sun and just delivering it to something like this, right? And they're saying it's two point four gigahertz <laughs> harvesting, right? Right. Yeah. Um, no, no, uh, I've seen real time clock chips that have super caps built into them, so that's they're probably combining that. With a super low power arm, and I have to look at the Bluetooth spec because there's a new one, 5.0, and maybe 5.0 allows kind of like a like initial handshake, and then you could just stream data no matter what, and the device doesn't care. I'm assuming that's what's happening. That would here. be cool. Yeah. Well, and 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 here's the thing. I'm gonna read a little excerpt from the the front page of their website. 
It says, imagine a Bluetooth chip with unlimited lifetime, a small sticker with processing power and sensors for a fraction of the price of traditional beacon devices. And it says, the next sentence is, we did and are building it now. Now, that, that statement is, I mean, that's a statement saying, like, this is already happening. So, great. I'd love to see it. This would be super cool. Yeah, I want to see a data sheet. Yeah, well, yeah, it's not on the website. Williot, send us a data sheet, and we will talk about it on the podcast. Yeah, we'll have you on the podcast, and we will start. Yeah, y'all can come on the podcast. We will start developing all kinds of cool stuff. Yeah. With it, yeah. That would be awesome. Thanks, Hyron, for uh, for flagging that in the uh, Slack channel. That's a great topic. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Yeah. All right. One last topic. We've been running a little long, but I think this is going to be good. This was from Mike from, from the Slack channel. And unfortunately, the link has already changed. But on uh, Amazon, there was a link for How Max 30, Max 30 single-use earplugs. And when you clicked it, it was actually to buy a Honeywell encoder for, I guess, for an industrial device. Yeah, yeah, like a like a rheostat kind of thing. Like a yeah, big, and it's yeah. like 50 bucks, yeah. okay? <laughs> yeah. Uh, they've since fixed it all, and so it's just, you know, the it's just the encoder and actually says what it is. But the reviews were are amazing the on gold. this thing. <laughs> yeah. Is, um, so this is supposed to be for earplugs. So it says, worst earplugs ever. Stuck them in my ears, connected them to a power source. That's when things went south. Pros, I definitely can't hear anything now. <laughs> Cons, the hearing loss is permanent. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's another, there's another comment about, like, somebody had to have their wife, like, screw them into their ears or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. See, join, join the Slack channel and you can get all kinds of fun stuff. <laughs> Yeah, that one's good. Well, I'll have to find a screenshot of what it was beforehand. Yeah, because they just changed it just a few hours ago. Yeah. Well, cool. So that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We are your hosts, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project topic, or weird Amazon link, or weird 2.4 gigahertz free energy device, let Steven and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer with no O's, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel and let Steven know what he should name his EQ device. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest map episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen as it helps this show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.